Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Well, welcome back as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour. It's a delight to bring on Brandon Weicker. We usually have him on Mondays. We weren't broadcasting live yesterday, so we have Brandon live today. He is the author of Winning Space, The Shadow War, Ron's Quest for Supremacy, and Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life, some of which will be out next year. Winning Space, of course, uh, out uh, earlier this year. Brandon Weikert, how are you, sir? I'm very good. How are you? I am fine. I was thinking before you came on, I was discussing with the audience what I thought the biggest story of the year was. Um, when it comes to foreign policy and international relations, I would guess that it's Ukraine for you, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. It might be something else, something we're not seeing. And I'd love to know what you think the most important domestic story of the year is while we're at it. But let's start with Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. Can, can Before we go very far uh, down that road, can I play you um, – can I play you uh, Tony Blinken from a few moments ago, just a little yeah. audio clip? Do you mind? Yeah, you, 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 You're probably familiar with it, but let's give it to you in the audience. Bear with. When it comes to Russia's war against Ukraine, if we were still in Afghanistan, uh, it would have, I think, made much more complicated the support that we've been able to give and that others have been able to give Ukraine to resist and push back against the Russian aggression. Boy, if you're Taiwan, you're awfully nervous hearing that, I would think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you saw as well. Uh, the Chinese had a, I think it was 71 warplanes they recently uh, sent into Taiwanese airspace as a proof of concept that, hey, we can intervene in your airspace and you can't do anything to stop us. So, yeah, yeah, if I were Taiwan... If I were Israel or Saudi Arabia as well, I would be thinking um, the Americans aren't going to have my back. Yeah, we um, were talking about that last week, if I'm not mistaken, the notion yeah. that we used to be able to say or we used to say our readiness was to be able to fight on two fronts. And right. uh, it begs the question whether we can even do one right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, we can't. And, um, you know, I I was just uh, posting uh, again and I'm working on an article now, and it looks like my colleague at the Asia Times, Stephen Bryan, has written a very incisive piece on this in the last few days. Uh, you know, the, um, the, the weapons stocks, the heavy weapons stocks uh, that we rely on uh, to send to Ukraine are at record lows. And uh, there's already talk coming out of uh, Zelensky's government that they're aiming for February to begin negotiations with with Russia. Now, this is, of course, a complete reversal from what they were saying even up to a week ago, which is we're going to fight to the bitter end. And I think the reason they're saying that is because even they are aware now that we are at the end of our ability in America and the NATO countries to continue to supply the heavy weapons that are critical uh, for Ukraine to continue their resistance. Furthermore, 
there have been stories coming out that the Russians are now beginning to effectively counter with electromagnetic jamming. They are now being able to effectively counter the very effective until now Ukrainian drone attacks. And uh, that has been a very decisive advantage that the Ukrainians have enjoyed thus far. But what we're seeing now is a massive um, rebuilding effort by Russia. Uh, the Russians have weathered a very bad loss thus far, but um, it looks like there are these facilities in Russia on the other side of the Ural Mountains that are going into high gear in terms of replenishing the Russian weapons that have been depleted. We already know Putin has called up 300,000 more Russian troops that he's coordinating with nearby Belarus. Uh, and we know also that uh, Russia is getting these weapons systems not only from Iran, but it turns out they're getting ballistic missiles from North Korea as well. So, you know, we talk about our ability in the West to kind of maintain this supply chain into Ukraine. But, um, you know, the Russians have been having the, the, these problems as well, except they seem to be adapting better. And as I told you from the start of this conflict, the longer this conflict wears on, the more likely it is that the Russians will have an advantage. And it looks like we are now reaching a pivot point going into the new year, wherein the the, the, uh, the balance of forces may finally be shifting in Russia's favor, which is a big problem. Uh, you know, Zelensky's now saying he might start negotiating in February, which is around the time many people are suspecting the Russians will do a renewed offensive. Well, why would the Russians do negotiations if they're about to begin a new offensive? So th this is a big problem because the longer the war wages, uh, you know, the longer this goes on, the less likely the Americans are able to supply Ukraine. The longer it goes on, the less likely we're able to protect our other friends elsewhere, the weaker we look, and therefore the more at risk the international system is from these revanchist powers like Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. And we are going to be bleeding ourselves or depleting our own stocks along the way, and impatience becomes uh, greater and greater. As I'm guessing, Russia, which is, what, three or four times the population of Ukraine, I'm guessing, somewhere in that neighborhood? I mean, they can just continue to throw this out and slow play the whole, fu the whole fight, can't they? Well, yes, that's true. Of course, it's important to remember that unlike in the Second World War, where the Russians were able to fight the Nazis with basically just more manpower, yeah, the Russians yeah, do right. have a smaller population mm -hmm. today, relatively speaking. But yes, compared to Ukraine, still, uh, the Russians, and the Russians also have, again, they have Belarus, and there are a smattering of reports, unconfirmed, that indicate elements of Iran's Revolutionary Guards Corps may be on the ground as well in uh, in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine. There's also reports that elements of the Syrian Arab army, Ashar al-Assad's army, uh, are also on the ground in Ukraine, helping the Russian forces there, augmenting them. Uh, there are even rumors that the North Koreans might be sending some troops in uh, under the command of Russians. So these are all rumors, but the point is, is that the Russians are also adapting to the environment um, and so, you know, this is why people like me who are very pro-Ukraine have been saying after those initial, those incredible gains in the last four months where the, the Ukrainians pushed all the way into eastern Ukraine, you know, unbelievably so, um, I was saying that they need to now not pivot for another offensive. They need to now consolidate what they have and push for negotiated settlement because I, it looks like the Russians might be able to start adapting. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that they're not able to. 
But you're right. They have a larger population still. And Putin has now declared it an official war, whereas before it was a special military operation. Um, and now he is basically 100 percent tied his existence as the sole leader of Russia to this uh, ability of achieving victory of some kind in Ukraine, which means he's not going to stop. This is going to be Stalin fighting Hitler. This is this is going to be his patriotic war, um, and he is going to either win or die trying to win. And so if you're Ukraine, you have really done an incredible job, but you're now at the limits of what the West can provide you. And the West now needs to start looking around going, wait a second, we've become so myopic in focusing on Ukraine, we're forgetting about China, we're forgetting about Iran, we're forgetting about North Korea, and the longer we get stuck in Ukraine, the more likely we'll be unable to address other concerns in these other parts of the world. And one other quick thing about And Anthony Blinken just said that, by the way. That, no. Yes, yes. And one other thing about Afghanistan, had out of Afghanistan the way that Joe Biden did, which was sloppy and haphazard, had we had an orderly withdrawal as the Trump administration had wanted to do, had we been able to show competence in the very least of not only keeping our people in power in Afghanistan, but also keeping some semblance of a counterterrorism force in place, had we been able to show competence to the world that we could both extricate ourselves without losing outright Afghanistan, it is highly unlikely that Russia would have been compelled to go for broke in Ukraine. But because we exhibited weakness, because Biden, Blinken, and Sullivan, and all the others exhibited absolute incompetence, fecklessness, and weakness, the Russians were inspired to push ahead into Ukraine, where otherwise they might have been resistant to doing that for fear of reprisal from us. You know, listening to you, uh, it raises a question that I don't think I've asked you in uh, almost a year of this conflict going on now. Let me go to a commercial break yeah. and have you answered on the other side. Here's the question. I'll tease the audience uh, with it is are Ukraine's interests here and the United States's interests or Zelensky's interests and Biden's interests the same? Let me hit this commercial break, Brandon, and have you discuss that with us when we come right back. As I go to break, let me put in a word for our sponsors at the Midas Gold Group. At the beginning of this year, you could invest in almost anything and make money. The stock market was growing. Real estate was high. Cryptocurrency was all the rage. And, well, here we are. <laughs> 2023 is going to be a year of a lot of economic uh, change, upheaval, and the Biden administration is not changing much course. They're pressing right ahead with their leftist agenda, ignoring the growing signs of, of recession and inflation, which is why I recommend securing your investments with the Midas Gold Group to safeguard your wealth with the stability of gold. Gold holds its value when economies fail. Guarding against the ravages of inflation and the ruins of recession, check out my friends, our friends at the Midas Gold Group. They are our friends. They make these communications possible. They are good people. Veteran-owned Midas Gold Group. MidasGoldGroup.com. MidasGoldGroup.com or 480-360-3000. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weichert is our guest, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. He is a columnist with the Asia Times, the Washington Times, American Greatness, others, and the author of several books and the publisher of the Weichert Report. Brandon, 
right before the break, I was asking, you know, a question I should have probably asked uh, sometime over the last eight, nine, ten months. I don't think I ever did. And it's, are Zelensky's and Biden's, are Ukraine's and America's interests the same? Um, In one overarching sort of macro sense, they are. Um, In the sense of it doesn't serve either Ukraine, obviously, or American or European interests to have Russia trying to break out of its existing borders, pushing into southern, you know, eastern and southern Ukraine at the very least, and then, you know, jumping from there into Transnistria, Moldova, into ultimately where they want to end up, which is Serbia, and creating sort of a southern European and kind of eastern European access of Slavic, Russian-dominated uh, zones. It doesn't serve our interest to have that. And so in that way, we've been very effective in slowing down, uh, a, a, you know, a revanchist Russian uh, power under Vladimir Putin. Now, where the interests begin to diverge is sort of in those particular elements, which is how far should we go in pushing back Russia? The Ukrainians under Zelensky have made it very clear. They're quite explicit. They not only want to hold the Western pro-American, pro-European, sophisticated part of Ukraine, uh, you know, for the West, they now want to, you know, liberate the eastern part, which has been under Russian occupation since at least 2014, which is mostly Russian-speaking and has a long history of being a Russian enclave. Um, the, the Ukrainians want to go in there and they want to take those lands back, and then they want to pivot and they want to roll down south and kick the, the, the Russians out of Crimea, which is completely, unfortunately, a non-starter. The Russians will go nuclear at, at the very least over Crimea. Because, in fact, you could say that all of this began uh, in Crimea when it looked like uh, the Russian naval base in Sevastopol, which has been a Russian naval base on the Black Sea since the time of Catherine the Great, uh, it looked like the Russians were going to lose that leak uh, in, I think, 2013, uh, to, and the Ukrainians were going to offer that lease up to the NATO countries. And that was one of the things that precipitated the little green men from Russia, their, their, the invasion of the unmarked Russian troops into eastern Ukraine, and in, that took into Crimea. That was, that was what precipitated it. And so it doesn't serve Western or American interests to let the Ukrainians go wild. I understand where the Ukrainians are coming from. My heart goes out to them. I hate saying this, but ultimately it's completely impractical and outside of our capability at present to let to encourage the Ukrainians to try to push into Crimea, to try to kick the Russians out of all of eastern Ukraine. The Ukrainians have made incredible strides, far more than they were, than anybody thought possible. And so what they should be doing now is consolidating what they've gained and trying to, you know, sit at that big, beautiful table and get the Russians to sit down and, to, you know, come to a consensus. You're not going to have peace, but you can get an armistice that will give the Ukrainians and the Western alliance time to rearm and regroup, which is what's needed now, because in the long run, the Russians have still, historically, they've always had that strategic depth, not just in terms of land, but in terms of resources, in terms of factory output. And the Russians are just getting their war machine going right now, it sounds like. And those facilities on the other side of the Ural Mountains have, I know for a fact, Zelensky very worried, because at a time when Western industrial output is not what it should be, the Russians are just getting their war industrial output going. 
And that should be a very frightening thing because all those gains the Ukrainians have made will be lost or much will be lost if they keep letting this war drag on. So in the long term, at sort of that tactical level, it does not behoove the Americans to, to let the Ukrainians keep running wild. We need to start reining them in and telling everyone, get at a table or else. Do you think and Biden thinks that? I don't think Biden's thinking anything. I okay. think Biden's completely brain dead. Okay. Uh, I think uh, that, Blinken, I think maybe? Does Blinken think it? Um, I think Blinken probably sees it. I, I think so. The problem is uh, Blinken and Sullivan and those guys, and they're mostly guys, uh, also, but Susan Rice as well, uh, that element from the Obama-Clinton kind of access of the Democratic Party they are hardliners on Russia because of what they believe to have been, and they're completely wrong, but they believe that Putin rigged the 2016 election against Hillary. They still and think so that? They, they are, still believe they that? Okay. They do. They do. And so they are ideologues, and they are, are radical because they don't, they don't want to ever give the Russians another chance as they see it. And so that is one of the problems that we're facing is that the Democrats feel they're threatened domestically by what they see as Russian ghosts you know, uh, affecting the domestic uh, electoral system. It's completely overwrought, but that's what they think, and I think that's what's making them go for broke on Russia. And in their minds, I think they're looking at it going, these are, we know there are limits to what we can do, but, you know, ultimately, the Ukrainians have been really, really impressive thus far. Maybe if we keep letting them run wild, they'll keep impressing us. But at some point, the law of diminishing returns is going to impact this conflict, especially when you take into account the fact that our heavy weapon stores are below 50 percent. I'd say they're probably between 20 and 30 percent and falling like a rock. And at that point, replenishing those stores, you talk to any defense person, anybody who does defense industrial goods, they're going to tell you it's going to take years under normal peacetime circumstances to replenish those systems. And we're not under normal peacetime circumstances anymore. So this is a big problem now, not just for Ukraine and Europe, but specifically for the United States, which has a global kind of set of interests it needs to worry about, not just Europe, not just Ukraine. Are they less worried about the Middle East than usual, would you think? I mean, it's interesting to me. I will tell you that uh, my read of presidential history is that at least for the last uh, 30 years, 40 years, presidents have tried, and particularly Democrats, but not exclusively, but more so, Democrats have tried to forge something of a peace deal in the Middle East, usually getting there, ending up getting their fingers burned, Clinton famously so. Um, but, you know, kind of interesting. Biden seems to have been a little quiet lately on any of that, yeah. even in the face of um, of, a, of an Israeli uh, conservative government. Right. 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 Um, again, on the macro level, I think that we do need and this is in the shadow war, which I know yep. you read. Yep. And thank you for your kind words. Of course. Um, but um, the in the shadow war, I talk about how we do need to strike a balance. We can't do what Bush did, George W. Bush, and invade the region and try to spread democracy. But Obama did as well, by the way, with the you know bombs for the freedom, uh, you know, plan yeah. uh, in Libya and Syria. But at the same time, we can't become totally isolationist. We have to basically 
go to what John Mearsheimer calls as the offshore balancer, where basically we step back, but we hand the region off to like-minded allies in the Sunni Arab states led by Saudi Arabia and Israel. Now, we are not doing that. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Let me take the quick commercial break and come back on that point. I have a feeling it's a big one. Thank you, Brandon. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He mentioned, uh, yes, one of his books, Winning Space, but also The Shadow War, Iran's quest for supremacy. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest, columnist with the Asia Times, America Greatness, the Washington Times, among other things. Uh, Brandon, you were just getting into uh, an answer with regard to Shia and Sunni interests vis-a-vis the Biden administration's lack of or quiet view of trying to shape something in the Middle East, put their finger on some kind of present there. Right. And what I what I was saying is basically we, we should be stepping back. We cannot replicate the George W. Bush freedom agenda or the Obama administration bombs for freedom, you know, plan that he had in uh, Libya, and Syria, and trying to do it in Egypt and all the other Arab Spring countries. What we need to do is what John Mearsheimer said, which is offshore balancing, where America's might is pulled back just over the horizon. But we have empowered, reliable partners on the ground to basically do our bidding and manage the day-to-day uh, affairs of the region that will keep that region uh, you know, somewhat in our sphere of influence. Well, the problem is this current administration has certainly taken a step back from the region, but they are also trying their best to alienate the Saudis and the Israelis, who we need, and they're trying to empower the Iranians, who already have the regime in Iran, already has a basically a quasi-colonial relationship with Russia and China, two of our you know, enemies, uh, as well as a partnership with North Korea. So what we're basically doing is we're abandoning the region literally to our enemies. Um, we're leaving our friends to figure it out for themselves. And, that, you know, in the case of Saudi Arabia, we see they're now making new arrangements with China. Uh, Israel has necessarily had to start playing nicer with uh, Russia, which until recently was operating militarily just next door in Syria, um, and all because the Americans can't be relied on anymore. Um, and so we're, you know, we do need to take a step back. We do need to recalibrate our level of commitment to the Middle East, but it can't be a complete abandonment. It can't be what, be what we're doing now. And so, um, you know, I do agree on some level with what some in the Biden administration are saying, which is we can't make the Middle East the number one priority. But I disagree fervently with the Biden administration's sort of uh, policy, which is to just basically say we're pulling out just like we did in Afghanistan and we're handing over this region, which is still very important geostrategically, to America's foes. And good luck, everybody else. We're, we're done because we don't have the luxury to do that, because right now Russia and China in particular are at their most dangerous. And so we should be doing everything in our power to contain and restrain their ability to operate beyond their borders. And it seems like the Biden administration really is not quite doing that. It is interesting, too, and it makes me a little nervous, I have to say, although this was entirely predictable, that while the protests in Iran, which were all the news and all the rage here up until about uh, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, are still going on, but not really covered here anymore. The patience and the interest in that has... uh, 
that it always dies out. It just dies out here. Our attention spans right. are low, well, and I think the government of this administration, this, I think this administration would rather us not uh, be focusing on. Yes, yes, because in their mind, it's just like the Obama administration. They don't believe the regime can fall, and I'm not convinced it's going to fall now either, but this is certainly the most dangerous point it has ever been for the revolutionary regime that the Grand Ayatollah established in 1979. They have not been this weak probably since the first couple of years that they took power. And uh, while I don't know if they're going to collapse now, I do think long term it is not looking good for that regime, that some kind of generational shift is going to happen sooner rather than later. Uh, and the Americans, especially when Democrats are running the show, whenever there are glimmers of hope that that generational shift is now, the Democrats hedge and they pull back and they do everything in their power to actually enhance and empower the mad mullahs of Iran. Um, again, we don't need to be invading Iran, but we should be doing more to help the protesters, especially yeah. because I'm... Yeah, no, that's right. That that was going to lead me to two kind of pregnant questions, perhaps even sure. controversial, as I go into the break for your response on the other side, which is regime change being a noxious or dirty word in our in our in our parlance these days. A question A uh, for the other side of the break is really only is that so when it's led by and driven by the Americans. I don't think most of us are against organic regime change if B is also true, which is the certainty that what comes next will, in fact, be an improvement. And can we be certain about that with Iran? I will go into break telling you that my view is Regime change is a good idea if America is not – if, in fact, it is organic, as I was pushing for in 09, and that we can be certain that anything after this will be better. I'd love your thoughts on those when we come back. And if I'm wrong, you tell me. If if we disagree, okay. Brandon's right and I'm wrong. Okay? <laughs> I am <laughs> Seth Leapson. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. If you are concerned with stock market volatility, our friends and sponsors at Y-Refi have an investment opportunity for you in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like. No surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, and there's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a Fixed interest rate up to 10.25%. That's right, up to 10.25% rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com, the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com, or call them at 888-Y-REFI-34. That's 888-Y-REFI-34. Really great guys. I know them well. Here's another great guy, Brandon Weikert, who has been spending the hour with us. Brandon, I said two things, maybe controversial, maybe wrong, um, that the notion of regime change is mostly distasteful and noxious uh, under two conditions. One is if it's at the behest and inspiration – wrong phrase – if it's at the uh, behest and military efforts of the United States of America, and two, if there is no guarantee that what comes next is better – uh, my sense is that organic regime change in Iran would be a very good thing and that there can be almost no question that what comes next would be better. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, I think the first part of what you said is correct. I 
obviously I can't predict the future 100%, so I don't want to say automatically what will come next will be better, but I happen to believe in the specific case of Iran, it would probably be better. In the case of Russia, I worry about what would come after Putin. But in the context of Iran, I certainly think when you look at the kinds of people who are protesting and what they're saying and what they're doing and how widespread, this is very different from 09. 09 was relatively relegated to the capital city, okay? So it was the urban elite who were wanting change and they didn't get it. This is widespread. It is, to use that tired phrase of the left, it is systemic. Um, and uh, in this case, if you look at the protesters in Iran, they're, they're actually very similar to the 2009 protesters. It's just that there's more of them and they're more widespread. So I do think that, yes, organic regime change or regime shift uh, away from the mad mullahocracy to something resembling a democratic or quasi-democratic organization or government, um, I think that that would be quantifiably better. Um, how we get there, though, is another question, because um, what we're seeing now is the harder and more violent, the, the, or the, the harder that the Iranian people push for change now, um, the, the nastier the regime gets, not just in oppressing the people, but in turning to Russia and China in asking them for greater uh, access and influence in Iran to help the Iranian services crack down on these people, whether it's giving them surveillance technology, giving weapons, giving intelligence, whatever. And the Russians and the Chinese, of course, because of all the oil wealth of Iran, are more than happy to involve themselves there. So um, you're right that, yes, organic regime change and how we could be playing a part Something as easily as, and I know he's a terrible public speaker, but unfortunately, for better or worse, Biden is the president. He's the leader of the free world. It would be nice if instead of attacking right, supposed right-wing terrorists or whatever, he actually spent his time making public statements in support of the people of Iran, the women of Iran, uh, you know, the minorities, the oppressed minorities of Iran who are now raging for equal rights and protection in Iran. Uh, that would actually go a long way. I and mean, it's called public diplomacy. We used to be very effective at it in the Cold War. We don't do it so much anymore. Beaming, uh, you know, American social media access. More Starlink, yes. Iran. Starlink. Well, they have 100 Starlinks. This is another victory for Elon Musk. You know, here's a guy taking a lot of flack on Dooley for trying to help us with free speech at home. But yet again, he's just given 100 Starlink terminals to the Iranian people so that the Iranians can have access, the people can have access to unfettered free media from around the world, that it can't be as easily regulated by the regime as it once was. And so more programs like that. Uh, When I was on the Hill, we could never get funding to do it. But every year, uh, the USAID came to us. They only needed $5 million, which for, you know, for foreign policy budgets, that's nothing. $5 million to build a couple of uh, uh, transmitter arrays outside of Iran on the other bo- on the other side of the border in Turkey uh, and on the other side of the border in Iraq, which at the time was controlled by the U.S. And they wanted to beam in from these the five million dollar uh, communication satellite. They wanted to beam in uh, easy access, uh, free Western media, and free access to Western social media, so that the people of Iran could coordinate and and communicate without the intervention of their government. And Congress would never do it. Uh, and it was actually, unfortunately, it was the Tea Party Republicans who constantly said no. And I thought that was a mistake because at the same time they were saying no to that, they were authorizing the funding for these massively expensive cruise missiles that, frankly, I think these USAID 
uh, communications relays would have been far more effective. Been more, much more effective than a cruise missile because we're giving the tools for the Iranian people to rise up and coordinate and communicate and mass and identify their attackers and, and hold their regime accountable. And so, you know, my, my big belief is doing things like that, uh, the U.S. government can do, and we used to be very, very good at this, uh, and we still could be, but we won't do it. And part of that, I think, is because the Biden administration deep down doesn't want to because they want to do a deal with the current regime, and they don't believe that the current regime is going to be overthrown, and that's very sad. Brandon, if it won't give you whiplash, I would love to ask you what you do deem to be the lead or top couple of leading political stories yeah. domestically of this year as we close out the year. Um, well, I think the big, and, and this I don't want to get anybody in trouble here, but um, you know, I'm a big DeSantis guy. Yeah. Um, I think the big story has been the way that certain members of the, of the right, particularly the Trump-supporting right, has uh, kind of reacted to DeSantis's impressive victory, which is they have tried to denigrate, they have tried to imply that he's somehow an agent of Ken Griffin and the Republican donor class. Uh, they have tried to say basically that he's a hack and that he's ineffective when everything he has done as governor has been Trumpian, only it's been um, quiet and he's done it in a disciplined way, which has actually allowed him to have more maneuvering room and to be more effective. We had the cleanest election of all 50 states. And you live in Arizona, so compared to Arizona, no offense, Florida had a much cleaner election. And that's because for two years before this election, DeSantis focused on changing and fixing our election system here at the state level so that you couldn't have chicanery and you couldn't have the kind of theft that goes on in some of these other uh, elections at the state level that affect, of course, the national. So I think that the domestic, the biggest kind of story has been the very negative or ambivalent way people on the right have reacted to DeSantis' really historic governorship. Uh, I mean, one of the, the probably the greatest governor in America right now. Uh, and it's been very sad to see that there's not this sort of universal love of DeSantis. You know, that's such an interesting right. answer, kind of a backdoor answer to the tremendous victory that DeSantis himself had. Yes, okay, that's what's in front of us. But the antipathy, the denigration, and in some respects, my gosh, even maybe potential denial of some of it when you yes. see some yes. of what Donald Trump has tweeted and something Mike Lindell oddly put out yeah. last week too about wanting to recount what dade county or something like that yeah let me yeah. let me take the break and tell me have you tell me when we come back in our short uh, final segment of the year together brandon when we come back tell me how you would rate uh elon musk's purchase of twitter and the revelations that have come out from that i am seth liebson he is brandon weikert we'll be right back Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert has been our guest this hour. Thank you for that, Brandon. Uh, I certainly didn't mean to uh, force feed the story. If you don't think it will have long-lasting consequences, maybe it was a flash in the pan. But I have been saying that I think maybe uh, another story of the year was the revelations uh, that came out as a result of uh, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. I wonder how you would rate that and if you think it will have long-term consequences. Um, I don't think it's going to have long-term okay. consequences okay. at all. I think that the, the left has an entire ecosystem which is primed for denial, 
Um, and the right, obviously, our ecosystem, the media ecosystem on the right is going to try to understandably kind of champion the story. And these, these revelations, for me, are nothing new. These are things that you and I have suspected. Now, for the layman, it probably is pretty shocking. If they hear um, about it. Right. And so it depends at this point, sadly, it's a lot like living in the old Soviet Union or, or Nazi Germany when it came to the press of the of Goebbels. You know, it was really, you know, who you had access to to give you the story because we don't have a free press anymore. And I think that's what these these stories that Elon Musk is showing underscore is that we don't have a free press. OK, and this is what Matt Taibbi and all these other guys have been really doing a good job. Barry Weiss has uh, been doing a really good job of highlighting just how unfree our press is and how basically if what, whatever your preferred um, press or media source is, that's going to be what your news is. And if they decide not to report it or if they decide to report it in a way that downplays or denies it or makes it a right-wing conspiracy, you are going to be primed to believe that. And so the, the tragedy here is we have someone in Elon Musk who is not a right-winger. He is not a right-winger. Everybody keeps saying this in the media. Oh, he's just another right-winger now. He is a left-wing guy. He is. He was a, he's an, oh, he still talks about how he loves Obama. This is not a guy who's a right-winger. He's just doing, I think, what he thinks is the honest work here of highlighting how our media system is corrupt and now basically manipulated and owned by the intelligence services of this country. Uh, and our media doesn't want to hear it. At least half of our media doesn't want to hear it. And so, and therefore, half of our people aren't going to hear it. So, it, I don't know if it's going to really make that much of a difference. No. The damage has been done for too long. I'm sorry to end it like that. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. It's a really good point. I mean, yeah, if if there's no one to hear this tree falling, uh, yeah, who, who who will know that it fell? And the media are doing their best not to cover it. And he's already trying yeah. to get out of Twitter. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, yeah. Brandon, listen. Thank you for your hour. Thank you for Happy the year. year. We'll spend next year with you too, if you'll have us. I absolutely will. Thank you, sir. Godspeed and God bless. Folks, you can get uh, you can follow Brandon on his very active Twitter feed. I mentioned everything he's doing except his Twitter feed, which is at we the Brandon. Uh, you can see his books from Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, to all the other interesting work he is doing. All right. Hugh Hallman coming in and coming right up. Don't go away. We'll be right back.